for all of us uh, here at Scottsdale Bible Church, uh, including uh, the Town Center, as well as our uh, Cactus Campus, our Mountain Valley Campus, our venue next door, and then our chapel, uh, we have five more weekends to go in this current configuration, and then uh, we're back to, well, kind of the way things were, but it's going to be a, a bit different, a bit more exciting with a lot more resources. Uh, in early November, we get back into the Shea Worship Center here, and we'll have a dedication uh, that first weekend in November, and then things become very uniform. We're going to be uh, having services at 5 o'clock on Saturday night uh, in the Shea Worship Center, and then all of us, everybody, all venues and campuses will be meeting at 9 and 11 uh, on Sunday. And so uh, I, I'm very, very excited, especially for me, because I've been doing like five every weekend, and I'm going to be ready to get back to three. Hopefully I'll have a little bit more energy. But also we've created a tremendous amount of more space, uh, really here as well as on other campuses, to now reach more people. And that's what we're talking about this fall, is how you and I can kind of live the vision of Compelled by Grace, which has been to reach our community, impact our world, and then leave a legacy for generations to come. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'm going to pray. A couple of months ago, I was at a pastor's gathering down in the city, and I was uh, talking with a fellow pastor who casually asked me, and I get this question often, uh, so what's going on with Scottsdale Bible Church nowadays? And I told him about our Compelled by Grace campaign that we've been in for three years with Reach Our Community, Impact Our World, and Leave a Legacy. And then I shared that as we're wrapping that up, that this fall, we're going to be engaging in what we're going to call a Love One journey as a church, challenging each attender, each one of Scottsdale Bible Church, to get more intentional about having a redemptive relationship uh, with a lost person in his or her sphere of influence, at least one person that they can journey with in order to bring them closer to God and his son, Jesus. And I kid you not, my pastor friend looked at me and he said, that's not you guys. And I said, what's not us guys? And he said, well, I've been in the valley here for decades. I've known Scottsdale Bible Church for decades. And your church is a good, conservative, Bible-teaching, disciple-making church. It's just not in your DNA to get that outreach-focused. And I got to tell you, I, I, uh, I, I'm bold sometimes from the pulpit, but, you know, when I'm face-to-face with people, I'm really not that way, and so I didn't say much. I just took it on the chin, and as, as I was driving back to my home, I was down in the city with my wife, Kim, uh, I was processing this with her, and I essentially said, you know, I'm glad that my church is known for being a conservative, Bible-teaching, making-disciples-of-Jesus kind of church, and I hope that we always will be. In fact, I believe, not arrogantly, but under my leadership, we will. But at the same time, I said to my wife, I think my friend is wrong that a solid disciple-making church can't simultaneously care for the lost and do all they can to reach them in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't see those two things at all as incompatible. I think that he's wrong, that it cannot and should not be a part, or even is not, of our DNA. And then I thought about it some more this week as I was planning for this today, and I thought, you know, I'll say it even stronger. If caring for the lost is not a part of our collective DNA as a church, as well as our actions, and I don't mean this as a threat, but I don't want to be a pastor of a church like that. And I would hope you would not want to attend a church like that. 
Uh, because part of being a Christian and a disciple of Jesus is learning to interact with those around us who have no hope and offer them the hope that we have in Christ. In fact, if you don't believe me, again, this is Scottsdale Bible Church. We know the Bible really well. Think about Jesus' very, very last words before he ascended into heaven. They're not found in the Gospels. What book are they found in? The book of Acts. And in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And based on that passage, I looked on a map this week, and Scottsdale and Phoenix are included in the ends of the earth. And so honestly, we're included in that you will be my witnesses thing. And that's a huge call of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing this fall here at our church, what Troy has called the One Love, Love One campaign. Our worship pastor really is very creative. When I uh, said to him a few months ago, hey, I, I want to talk about evangelism this fall, uh, he said, well, let's rebadge that. And, and let's call it the, the One Love, Love One campaign. Simply put, that out of the one love that we all have from Jesus Christ that has redeemed us and saved us, we are called to at least love one, one at a time, uh, into the kingdom. And so we're asking everybody here at our church and at our venues and campuses to identify at least one person by name in your sphere of influence, one person that you're willing to journey with in a redemptive way, a way in which over time you can share the good news of Christ with him or her and then see what God does with that. Because it's his power, his show, his love that it's all about. And we're going to help you learn to do that. So we've been talking last week, this week, and next week about the three motivations that we should have for the lost, which are love, truth, and eternity. And then we take a couple-week break as uh, O.S. Hawkins is going to be with us and then Daryl. And then we pick up again for the second half of this journey and talking very specifically on what it looks like to journey with a lost one in a relational way, but also a clear and intentional way. And I think that God is going to be very honored and our lives blessed because of this journey. So we're here today to talk about truth. So why don't you bow with me and pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father God, I thank you that um, when Jesus was on this earth, he made it very clear that he was here to bring redemption to humankind, the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life that we so desperately need. But then, Lord, to build his church, to establish his church and build his church so that, Lord, as we're going to see today, we could become carriers of his grace and his truth and his love and his message. And so, God, I pray that as we talk about what that means for us as a church here in the 21st century, Scottsdale Bible Church, that indeed does have a very rich history, God, of being so faithful to you in so many ways, I, I pray, God, that we might add to our faithfulness, as the scripture says, love. And that that love would care about the lost ones around us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I think Thomas Jefferson said it best when it comes to truth when he said this. He said, it is error alone which needs the support of government. <laughs> truth can stand by itself. 
I think that's a great way of saying it. It's error alone that needs the support of government, but truth can stand by itself. So what he's saying is, is that politics aside, truth by its very nature doesn't need anybody's validation or support, let alone government, uh, for the simple reason that truth by its very nature is truth, and it stands on its own. Let me explain. Webster's Dictionary defines truth this way, and I quote, the real facts about something or that which is in accord with reality. So truth aligns you and me with what is. It centers us on reality. It reveals the essential nature of someone or something. That's truth. So an example would be that if I tell you that it's true that the earth is round and not flat, I've just shared, according to Webster's Dictionary, a real fact about something, something that accords with actual reality. And even though for thousands of years nobody believed that, they believed something that was untrue, even though they believed something false, it didn't take away from what truth really was, the fact that eventually we discovered that the earth is round and not flat. Another example would be that if I tell you this morning that the Cleveland Browns have never won a Super Bowl championship, let alone played in one, never, ever, ever, I've shared with you, according to Webster's Dictionary, a real fact about something, something that accords with reality. Uh, I would just simply argue that it's a very, very sad and sobering reality. In fact, it's really hard for me this year. I just got to tell you as a quick side note, I don't know if you've noticed, for those of you who watch NFL football, but on all 33 games that will occur every week, the 50-yard line has been highlighted in a different color. And the reason that that is is because this is the 50th anniversary of the National Football League. And it really digs to me and Detroit fans because Cleveland and Detroit are the only teams in 50 years who have never won a Super Bowl championship. So every time I see that 50-yard line, I think, oh, stink. And, and, and the way it's looking, the way it's looking, this will not be Cleveland's year either. So you get the idea. Truth means reality. That's all you need to have in your mind. Truth means reality. It centers us on what is. And though we can defend what we think truth is, at the end of the day, Jefferson's right. By its very nature, it really doesn't need to be defended. It stands on its own. The reason we defend it is because we're all fallen people who have different conceptions of truth, so we're trying to vie for what we think truth is. And today, as we continue in our series on what should motivate you and me for the lost around us, I want to talk to you about a very specific kind of truth, what I'm going to call divine truth. Uh, Divine truth. Simply put, the truth about God, his existence, and the nature of the spiritual realm. And to aid us in our discussion, we're going to just look at one verse in the Bible that I'm going to read for you again in just a second here, and then I'm going to make three observations on this one verse about the nature of truth. So first, let's read the verse. It's found in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, and it says this, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, believe it or not, guys, there is a lot going on in this single verse from the Bible. 
uh, lots of moving parts here, even a, a lot of diverse trains of thought kind of colliding together. And, and so when you add all this up, this verse, as I've spent a lot of time in recently, you come up with at least three different principles, uh, but they all mesh together on what this is saying about truth and how you and I are to handle truth in light of the seeking ones around us. And so first notice with me that Peter is telling us here that followers of Jesus are carriers of divine truth. I know that sounds so audacious, but just bear with me here. Followers of Jesus are carriers in a very real way of divine truth. And so look once again at this passage, but for right now we're going to take the bookends out of it. So I've removed the first part and the last part that we're going to get to in a minute. The middle part of this passage says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And if you're tracking with me at all, you got to be asking yourself, well, well, what is it that Peter wants us to prepare to make a defense for? And what is this hope that is in us? And it's not a trick question. I'll tell you that right now. Almost every commentary I looked at this week, and I looked at about eight, and almost all the Bible experts agree on the answer. And the answer is obviously the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the context of the book of Peter here when he says that we need to defend something and give a reason for that hope we have. It's all pointing back to what we call the gospel of Jesus. And what is the gospel? It's simply the reality that Jesus came to this earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he performed a bunch of miracles, that he taught about God and his kingdom, that he then claimed to be God come in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. Then he went to a wooden cross to die a substitute death, the death that you and I should have died because of our sins against God. He died, and then he rose from the dead three days later, walked on this earth for 40 days, where over 500 people witnessed that, finally ascending back up into heaven where he rules at the right hand of the Father, and he's promised someday to come again. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's what Peter is telling us here that we need to make a defense for. It's the hope that we have. And what you need to know is that whenever the biblical writers bumped into the gospel based on the ministry and words of Jesus, they had a word for that, and that word was truth. That this is the stuff that accords with reality. These are the real facts about something in the spiritual realm. If you don't believe me, look at how Jesus very clearly put this when he was on this earth in John 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus is speaking here. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the, say it with me, truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, it's so funny, Hollywood and movies always make fun of this verse. You ever notice that? When they like portray fundamentalist pastors, you know, and the truth will set you free or something like that. And that's sad because I think we missed the whole point of it. It wasn't a fundamentalist pastor that first talked about these words. It was Jesus. And Jesus was talking about these words in light of his gospel when it is personally received in the life of a lost one this side of heaven. And so the gospel of Jesus is divine truth. It's truth that comes from God, that is about God. 
on how to know him and follow him and find freedom in him. The same divine truth that Peter says is our hope in this life and the next. Now, let's go back to our passage and let me show you one other key thing that pulls us all together. Notice in our passage that he says we need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is, now watch this, in you. In you. He didn't have to add those two words there. Do you understand that? He could have just said for the hope that you have or for the hope that you've received or some other way. But under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Peter makes it very clear that this hope, this gospel is in you. And it's in you simply because you have come to believe and trust in Jesus. And so now, if you're tracking with me, the truth of who he is and the truth of his gospel resides in you. It resides in your mind and in your heart. Paul the Apostle believed this so much that he said part of our sanctification is learning to even get the mind of Christ because the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we view this world is now radically different. We're a new creation as we learn to become the men and women that God wants us to be. And part of being a new creation is having the truth of God through the gospel of Jesus now in our minds and our hearts each moment of each day. And this is why I say what Peter is telling us here in very poetic but beautiful ways is that as followers of Jesus, we are carriers of divine truth. You might not have seen your life that way, but it's true. The hope that is in you in each of us who believe makes us now carriers of something that the world around us doesn't have, but I'm gonna argue in a minute, longs for. Now, I'm gonna be the first to admit that at this point, we have to be very careful once we understand this with this idea that we are carriers of divine truth. And the reason that we have to be careful, and tell me if this isn't true, is that when you learn to think this way, it can easily lead to an arrogance and an exclusivity that others just might start to feel from us. I, 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 I mean, I know it's hard to picture a Christian who comes across as arrogant or exclusive, but just go with me with this for a minute, will you? I, I gave a lot of thought to this this week. I thought, you know, when you and I kind of have in our minds, even if we won't say it to people, even if we just think that we are carriers of divine truth, if we're not really careful, that really could come across as arrogant, couldn't it? I mean, I thought, you know, sometimes I go to the doctor and, and, you know, we've all gone to doctors that see themselves as carriers of medical truth and, and they're kind of full of themselves and sort of condescending and we think, well, I'm, I'm glad they know what they're talking about, but I hope I don't have to see them again. That, that's kind of how we, and it's the same with politicians or teachers or engineers. I mean, anybody that, that sort of sees themselves as carriers of truth. You know, that somehow I know more than you and I have found something that you don't know and, and your pathetic life needs my knowledge. You know, you're kind of like going, well, okay, I really do need them, but I'd rather not be around them again. And so I can understand, quite frankly, how when Christians say we're carriers of divine truth, that that might be just a little bit off-putting <laughs> to people around us. And so what I've found helpful over the years for followers of Jesus is for us to remember a couple of things that we're not saying 
when we say that we're carriers of divine truth. I, I didn't put these on your outline, but I'll put them up here on our monitor. First, we aren't saying that we know all divine truth, just some. And the sum that we know, we feel, is rather important. But I think this is a really important point. I'll give you an illustration here in a minute. But we are not saying that we are the master chefs of all divine truth. (laughs) There's only one person that could say that. What's his name? Jesus. No, no. We're saying, as we're seeing in a minute, that we're just a few survivalists who have learned to find some water in the desert. (laughs) And we can help you find some water, too. And I think it's important we remind ourselves that that's what we're saying when we say that we've discovered divine truth. Uh, Secondly, we aren't saying that all we know is truth. Now, what do I mean by that? I I want to be very careful with this. I'm not saying that when we say that we know that the gospel is truth, it could really be that it isn't. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that this book, 66 books bound in the Bible, is filled with a lot of truth. In fact, everything in here is true. But it doesn't mean, especially when it comes to some sideshow theological issues, that everything that you and I individually interpret as true here is true. We might have misinterpreted it. We might be wrong. I mean, quite frankly, for 2,000 years, there has been, have you ever noticed this, a lot of sparring within church history on exactly what this book means on issues like baptism charismatic theology, even how to interpret this book, uh, the nature of the human will, the nature of the sovereignty of God. I mean, lots of pretty big issues in which there are two or three or four sides of this within orthodox evangelical faith in the history of the world, which has taught at least me, who has a master's degree in this stuff, that I need to hold some of these issues that I believe strongly in rather lightly Because I just might get to heaven and find that some of the things that I said were true or that I thought was true really wasn't. (laughs) And again, it doesn't mean I throw in the white towel or wave the white towel. What it means is that I just posture myself differently toward these things. And you'll hear me say this often if you talk to me personally. I'll say quite often, I'll preface a conversation on a difficult subject like this. I'll say, you know what, I might be wrong on this, but... And then I'll give you my best stab as to what I think. But that little phrase, I might be wrong, I think does wonders in our attitude of humility here. Here's what I have found. I have found over the years by admitting these two things here with those around me, uh, the fact that I'm not claiming to know all divine truth, just some, some really important some, and that I'm not saying that everything I know is truth because I could be wrong on some of the sideshow issues. When I say that, it takes the edge off of some if not much of the arrogance and exclusivity that others might feel for me when I rightly assume, rightly assume, that I am a carrier of divine truth as a follower of Jesus. I told you I was going to give you an illustration. I don't know if this will work or not, but it works for me, so we'll give it a shot. I, uh, I, one thing I love to do in my spare time uh, is watch survival shows. Any of you guys like those survival shows? So it actually drives my wife a little bit nuts because she likes to watch, uh, you know, Lifetime for Women and, uh, you know, NCIS and things like that. And I'm always on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel. And one of my favorite survival shows is called Dual Survivor. Survival, And it's actually a great show. These are not the two guys on it anymore because they can always fight with each other. This is the original two guys, Cody and Dave. 
And the show was about uh, two men. Uh, they actually had one that was about married couples before that, but two men that are out in very, very tough survival situations. And the whole show is about teaching us that if you're in a survival situation, how you could actually survive, because these are the experts on this. And it is reality television, meaning that, you know, they make it look like it's really dangerous. Of course, I think to myself, you know, you got a camera crew with you if it really gets tough. They just might be able to lend a, they probably got a power bar there or something like that. But forget about that for a second. They're trying to show that, that in survival situations how to survive. And one of those shows or episodes that I, I really loved was one done here in Arizona. And it was done with Cody Lundin on the left, who actually is from Arizona there. And they showed how to survive in the desert. And so they threw him in the middle of the Sonoran Desert with no water, no food, for like three, four days, and they had to survive. And they actually showed how to try to find water in the desert. They, they showed how to get a little bit of water from some cactus. They showed how to dig in the right place during some of these washes where rain came by a long time ago, might, might still be under, underground there. And then they showed how to filter the water. Uh, and, and it was actually a very educational uh, kind of a, a, a neat show. I don't know if I could ever really do any of that, but, but it was at least fun to, to see that and to show that it's possible to survive uh, in the desert if, if you have the right knowledge. Now, let me ask you a question. It's going to seem like a stupid question, but there's a point to this. Does the fact that these two experts who know how to find water in the desert, does that fact make them master chefs, yes or no? No. In fact, they might be the worst cooks in the world. Uh, does it make them great bakers? Like, are they really good at baking what my wife calls cookies, creams, cakes, and pies? Would it make them good bakers? Uh, I don't know, probably not. Does it even make them experts on the chemical nature of H2O? <laughs> yes or no? Probably not. Uh, what these two guys claim to be experts in is how to find water in a tough survival situation. That's it. That's the knowledge that they're claiming. And I think there's a great illustration in that for Christians. Because as far as I see it from the Bible, what Christians are claiming is that when it comes to having divine knowledge, we have some really important divine knowledge. But we aren't saying that we're master chefs of divine knowledge. As I said, only Jesus could say that. No, what we're saying is that we have some really important survivalist knowledge about how to find spiritual water for somebody's parched soul in the desert of this fallen world. That's the claim that we are making. And that's what it means to be a carrier of divine truth. It's some divine truth that we have, albeit very important divine truth. You and I are thirsty people who have some knowledge on how to find water in a desert. And for other people who are likewise thirsty, and I'm going to argue in a second here that there's a lot of them, we have something very helpful to offer them. But let's not be arrogant about it. Let's not have an air of exclusivity about it. Uh, let's be, as we'll see in a second here, humble and gentle, albeit confident about it, because that's what we're saying here. We're car carriers of divine truth. It's water in a desert that we have to offer people. And here's the second thing that this naturally leads to, and that is that a hopeless world desperately needs this water. They desperately need the divine truth that you and I 
have latched on to, or to put it more clearly, that God has revealed to us. I love how Peter words it here in our passage using one word that's easy to gloss over. Look again at verse 15. He says, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the, say it with me, hope that is in you. You know, it's interesting. He could have used any other word. That's really more of a poetic way of saying it, isn't it? I mean, as we've already seen, what he probably should have said was always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the gospel that you've come to believe in or for a reason for the truth of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't say any of that. He wants to word it, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this way, for the hope that you have, as we've seen, that is in you. But what hope? The hope of eternal life with God? The hope of sins forgiven here and now? Uh, the hope of peace and joy in this life in the midst of the most difficult situations? It's the hope that only the gospel of Jesus can offer a human life. And you know, when you think about it, though our world fights us on this, and they kind of at times will point blank say, well, I don't want any of that crud, and I don't need religion, I don't need that. At the end of the day, when we cast it in the light of hope, they really do want it. <laughs> Even if they won't admit it, the best chance we have of softening our hard hearts to them is to realize that we have hope because of Jesus. And deep down, they want this hope as well. Emil Bruner was a great Swiss theologian, and he once said it this way. He said, what oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. And he's right. And there isn't one person alive today that deep down, when they're honest with themselves, doesn't want that kind of hope. But here's what you and I sometimes fail to see. And that is that our hopeless world blocks people many times from seeing Christ in his truth and without Christ, our world will continue to be hopeless. And this is why truth that leads to hope should become a core motivation for why you and I should care about the lost around us. In other words, what I'm challenging you to do is link all the things that drive you crazy in this world today. And I know because you guys bring that to me, you know, it drives you nuts and this and this and this and this. And this. Well, just realize that all that's about the hopelessness that exists out there and that you're a carrier of hope and you can bring hope to this hopeless situation. I, I have so many examples of this, but you know, one of the things that hit me recently, and I know you've experienced this too, um, I live in a neighborhood here in Scottsdale that's a, a, uh, a non-gated community just north of here that has a lot of young families in it. I'm not sure Kim and I knew how many when we moved in, but uh, we are the oldest people on the block, save for one other couple that's been there since 96 when the neighborhood was built. And we actually have grown to love that, Kim and I have. We almost feel like the grandparents on our block, even though we're not quite that old yet. I drive down my block and they got those little, you know, stick figures with the flag saying, slow down, you know, and all this. And, 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 and one of these days I want to run one of those over, but that would be a bad thing to do to my neighbors. But the other thing that happens when I round the corner most mornings coming to the church, driving out of my neighborhood, I pass by the school bus stop. And it's not for elementary kids because they already have their school right near here. It's for junior high and senior high. And what blows me away every time I drive by is that there's, you know, 20 or 30 kids waiting for the bus. And there's always at least five to ten cars filled with the parents who are waiting and watching 
to make sure their kids get on the bus. Now, are they doing that because they're afraid their kids are going to run away and not get on the bus? No, they're not. But when I first saw that, I will confess to you, because it started about eight years ago when I moved here, because this was never this way in the Midwest. When I first saw that, my initial reaction was typical overprotective wacko parents. Can't even, like, you know, trust enough to let their kids get on the bus. But then as I thought about it more, honestly, I thought, you know, my kids are older now, but if I was them and my kids were that young right now, even in the wonderful, safe community that I live in, I very much might be one of those parents because I know what this world is like. I mean, I grew up in a small town outside of Cleveland and I waited at the bus stop and the chances of me being lured away by a pedophile were not very strong. But it's a different world today and things are crazy and things are upside down. And my simple point in telling you the bus stop illustration is that they know it. Your friends who don't know Jesus know it. And it's why they wait at a bus stop. They could, it'd be quicker just to drive your kids to school. But they want them to have the bus stop experience. But they have to guard them like hawks while they're at it. And honestly, that's just one small cultural indicator. I read an article this week that just puts, again, some things in perspective. It was an article two years ago from the New York Times in which they cited that in the last decade, so from 2003 to 2013, suicide rates among middle-aged Americans, not young kids, that we always hear about it, but middle-aged Americans has risen 30%. In fact, it's risen so significantly that there are now more Americans that die of suicide in our country than car accidents. We never thought that would happen. In this article, they quoted Dr. Julie Phillips from Rutgers University who said something I thought was so profound. She said, and I quote, the baby boomers had great expectations for what their life would look like, but that hasn't turned out that way. And she's right. We all had this grand vision on what life and culture would be. And as Larry Crabb says, it's all about shattered dreams. And that's where many people are living today. And they try to convince you otherwise (laughs) because we all want to put on a good face, amen? We all do that. We try to fake it till we make it. The only problem is they're not making it, but they're still faking it. And so don't let anybody fool you. Hopelessness reigns for many, many, many people today. And as followers of Jesus, you and I, though nowhere near perfect, have at least one thing going for us in Jesus, and that is hope. That we have hope in our souls that good days can come as we follow Christ and find our personhood, our satisfaction, our sufficiency in him. So track where we've come from. Followers of Jesus are carriers of divine truth. It's the same divine truth that a hopeless world desperately needs. And then notice a third and final thing that this single verse in Peter here teaches us. And it's simply this, that how we approach and deliver this truth makes all the difference. And I think the church really needs to hear this today. I said to you earlier that I was gonna take the bookends off this passage, look in the beginning, now let's put the bookends back on because it's amazing what Peter does here. Here are the bookends of this passage. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And then he goes on to say, make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that's in you. And then he closes by saying, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So watch this. 
He's saying two things here. One, posture yourself in a right way before God, and then posture yourself in a right way before others. And both are really, really important because this will keep you having confidence when it comes to the truth that you have and not shrinking away from it or fudging on it. And this will keep you having a great deal of winsomeness and humility with those around you. When he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, very quickly, hearts there is the Greek word cardia, where we get the English word cardio or cardiology from. And it simply meant in the Greek world, because they didn't know a lot about medicine, the center of a person. That's where the heart is, in the center of you. And so what Peter is saying here is in the very center of your being, make sure Christ is reigning as Lord and as holy, as set apart and distinct Make sure he is number one in every aspect of your life. Remember that he is sovereign and good and completely in control. And the reason Peter prefaces it with that is that then when you and I go into our our world, that's a pretty brutal world as we've seen, armed with being carriers of truth, we're not going to be tempted to fudge on that truth or to shrink away or cave in on the truth, as so many people do. This will give us confidence as Christ is Lord that the truth we have is real, that it accords with reality. Uh, But then so that we don't become arrogant, he says do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, That word gentleness there, we're going to study it more in January when I do a series on the fruits of the Spirit uh, here at our church. Uh, But gentleness there is actually a very, very, very powerful word in the New Testament. It's weird. It's a powerful word for a word that's talking about being gentle. In the Greek world, this word was used to describe the taming of wild animals. Isn't that interesting? And so picture a wild horse that's going crazy and you know, spend hours in the ring taming it. So why? So that it could have a purpose and be ridden and be more useful. Here's what God is saying. There was a time when many of you were way too wild. And you were out of control, and you weren't very useful in his hands. But now that you've come to Jesus, and now that you know him, and now that you're more mature in your faith in him, the expectation is you've been tamed. (laughs) You're now more gentle in your demeanor. You're gentle in the way you come across. Interestingly, this word is used twice of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus said to me, remember this passage, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? For I am humble and gentle. And then in Matthew 21, it says, Behold, when Jesus is riding in Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey. And then it says, it translates in ESV, humble, but it means gentle. It's the same Greek word gentle being used here. So our tough, strong, sin-forgiving Savior was gentle and respectful with all that he, inter- people that he interacted with. Uh, last thought, I think really what we're looking for here, maybe this will help, this really helped somebody uh, last night as we were talking about this, is that we're looking for Christians who have a lot of conviction, but they make a distinction between that and anger. They have a lot of confidence, but they know the difference between confidence and arrogance. And, and they're very Christ-centered in the way that they talk with others rather than always being sucked into an issue-centered approach. Do, do you know what the difference is? I have a dear friend who I talk with all the time about spiritual things, and he's really struggling in his spiritual life right now. And um, you know, every time I talk with him, he wants to argue with me about issues. You know, evolution, women's rights, uh, the environment, uh, you know, even the nature of God himself and all these things. And you have friends like this. Anytime I take the biblical view, he takes what view? 
anything that's the opposite. I mean, that's just what he takes because that's where he is in, in, in wrestling right now with these things. And so the other day I did kind of something interesting with him. I, I didn't really mean it. I think he knew it, but it was a way of just trying to cut to the quick. I said, you know, on all the issues that we spar on, let me just do this. I'll give you every one of them. <laughs> I, I'll let you become the most progressive, liberal, left-wing person you can be. So I'll give you every single one of these issues. They're yours. I concede. I give in. I said, but there's one issue that I'm not going to give in on, and it's the one I want to talk to you about right now, and that is who is Jesus and his claim on your very life. Let's just focus in on that one. And I even said to him, I said, I, because the reason is, as I know I can get you to come to Jesus, he's going to pull you back from the left. He's going to pull you back from all these other things. I don't mean this politically, by the way, you guys. I mean just being way out there morally and other things. He's going to pull you back from that. And he's going to center you in where you need to be. You see, I think we need a, a, a world of Christians today that are conviction and have confidence and are Christ-centered versus so many Christians that come across as angry, arrogant, and only want to argue about the issues. Last night, somebody came up to me. It was a really humble moment. He said, you know, that was so helpful because I spent the vast majority of my early Christianity just being angry, arrogant, and always arguing about issues. And he said, it's so helpful to realize that what Peter is saying here is let's be men and women of conviction, confidence, who are Christ-centered. I, I hope you've seen today that truth really does matter, and it matters greatly. Truth really is what leads many people to Jesus at the end of the day. And you and I are carriers of it. Our world is hopeless without it. And we can do this with gentleness and respect. We want to wrap up in two ways here today. The first thing we want to do is show you a story. We captured a story this week of one of our members here who's had a wonderful experience with this, actually two of our members. And uh, then we're going to wrap up here and in our venues and campuses with our elder fund offering. But first, let me share with you Matt's story. Some of you might recognize Matt, especially here on the Shea campus. Matt sings in our choir. He's been a frontline singer. Uh, Matt is Japanese uh, by heritage. And when he came here to this country, uh, was really seeking um, a lot of things of a spiritual nature. And it was truth that really made all the difference for him, but truth that was also embodied in a dear friend of his, Brad. So let me let, you tell them, let them tell you their story, and then I'll wrap us up and we'll pray. So look up here on the screen. My family was Buddhist, but they were materialistic, basically atheistic. Nobody talked about God, nobody. When I came to this country, United States, I was actually emptying my heart, so I was searching around, and uh, I got into yoga, uh, Buddhism, the Sankhya philosophy, New Age, you name it. I was just searching through everything, but I, I never got satisfied, you know, it was just uh, something was still missing. Of course, I came from you know, a different country, and I couldn't do the good speech, so I was just flipping through the channel TV, and my eyes got caught by great speakers, and they were Christian channels. You know, they were like a televangelist, I, I guess. So I was just taking notes. All right, you, you look at the people, and you know, repeat at least three times, take pause. You know, so I was taking notes for my speech class. Then I, I did long enough, I guess, the message actually came to, into my heart and sunk in somehow, somewhere. Then I met my uh, good friend, Brad Tridel. Our wives ended up working together at uh, a local company. My wife is Japanese, and 
Of course, both Matt and his wife are from Japan as well. So we had a lot in common. It was a Saturday night, we had nothing to do. And so we said, well, why don't you come over to our house and we'll watch a movie and get some pizza. And it was the start of a great lifelong relationship. You know, I, I saw something in him, something I, I can't really, you know, grasp what it was, but the, I wanted to know what he has. And um, then I found out he was Christian. Anyone who knows Matt knows he's an extremely intelligent man. Loves to know, you know, the truth about something. And I enjoy those kinds of conversations as well. Matt enjoyed knowing that there is an intellectual side to Christianity. And I was an atheist at the time, so I was very harsh on the spiritual stuff, you know. But he was very gentle and never negated what I said. He was just, he said, I understand that. I encouraged Matt to look for the truth, to look for the facts, to read for himself. Uh, he kept telling me that, you know, truth will set you free. But, you know, I, I couldn't find what the truth was. I just realized that it's the faith for Jesus that made him confident and uh, strong. And all through my exploration, that's what was missing. He took me to church, and I felt a tug in my heart when they had the uh, altar call. And I looked at my wife, oh man, I, I, golly, this is awkward, but I really want to go. My wife was looking at, looking at me like, hey, Matt, what are you doing? <laughs> but I had, I'd stood up and just went to the altar call right there, and then I gave my heart to Christ. God is truth. Uh, and if you're seeking truth, I believe you will find God. I, I give everything to God, and God gives me peace every time. The truth literally set me free, and I, 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 I found what I was looking for. You know, that's really our hope for uh, every one of you uh, and at our campuses and venues that um, God might use you that way. And again, we've condensed into three minutes <laughs> what was years of a journey. So, you know, don't feel pressure in that. And again, don't feel pressure, too, that this is about you, because it's not. It's about God and about lost ones and him wanting to use you. As I said a few weeks ago, our church exists in great part for God to use us to reach them. And that's what this whole Love One journey is about, and that's what we're going to keep highlighting here over the next few weeks and couple of months for you. I will let you know next week's going to be a special week. I, it's funny, I did not plan this based on this video because I didn't see this till Friday, and I've been planning this series for months. Uh, next weekend, here and at all of our campuses and venues, uh, we're going to be doing an altar call. And, and the reason that I planned it on next weekend is because in the flow of this series, we cap off next weekend with our three-week look at the motives for caring for the lost, which we're seeing are love, truth, and eternity. I'm going to talk about eternity next week based on that wonderful passage out of Ecclesiastes where it says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of all human beings so that we might not, not fully understand him, but be drawn to him. So we're going to talk about what that means. And, and then we have a two-week break with O.S. Hawkins here and then Daryl, because I'll be at, at Lucas's church in Toronto. And then uh, we come back and we start taking off on what it means to journey with the lost one. Before we start talking about what it really means to journey with the lost one, I want to make sure all of us are right with God. Amen? I want to make sure all of us are, 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 have come home to God. And so we're going to do two things next week. We're going to have an altar call for people to, to become Christians, but also an altar call for people to recommit their lives 
So if you're in that camp, make sure you don't miss next Sunday. And also, it might be a great Sunday for you to invite somebody to church, right? It might be a great Sunday for you to invite a seeking friend. Just don't sabotage them. Tell them what they're getting into. Tell them that your pastor is going to talk about eternity and give a chance for people to respond at the end. I mean, don't insult their intelligence that way. And then let's all pray up this week, okay, uh, on what God might do next weekend. I can't tell you, I, I, we have been praying for months, really years, uh, about this season for our church. And um, I can't wait to see what the Lord does. Uh, we're going to go into our elder fund offering right now here and at our other campuses. But why don't you bow with me and let's pray as we get set for that. God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you care about lost ones around us. That as the scriptures say, that for every sinner that repents, angels rejoice in heaven. And a party is thrown because you care that much about prodigals that come home. I pray, God, that as we ask the very simple question how each of us can be involved in the lives of prodigals, of the lost sheep of Israel, those that don't know you yet, I pray, God, that you would help each one of us to identify some people in our lives, at least one, who we might be able to be more relational with, more intentional with, more loving with, as we've seen today, more truthful with. And that, Lord, in your hands, you would use that for your kingdom and your glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.